we are uh, going to talk about a lot of stuff today. Um, there is tons of information in this first section of chapter two, and I'm not going to spend. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on some of it. I'm not going to cover others, other parts of it at all. If you have questions, please text your question into our text number, and we will interact with them at the end. Chapter two, verse four. It says, these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. So this, this phrase, these are the records. This is a phrase that we're going to come across over and over and over again in this book. It's 10 times that this phrase occurs. It's translated differently in our English Bibles, but the word in Hebrew is toledot, and it means this is the story or this is the record. And it's always moving the story forward. It's always introducing a new section. So this is the story of Abraham. This is the story of Esau. This is the story of Joseph. And we're going to see it over and over and over again. And it's going to announce the story. And then it's going to tell the story. And so because of that, this is the record. These are the records. This is the story of the heavens and the earth we can know one thing about this story, that this story takes place after Genesis 1. There are a lot of um, commentators over the years that have thought that Genesis 2 like fits inside day 6 of Genesis 1. Remember, in, in day 6 of Genesis 1, God created the animals and the humans. But the way the literature works, it doesn't make sense to read it that way. It's hard to put this story inside that story. And so what we're seeing here is a sequel to Genesis 1, not a recapitulation of day 6. So what is this story telling? Well, it's the same story, but it's a little bit different. Look at verse 5. There's uh, at the time the Lord God made the heavens and the or the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. And for the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. So remember in Genesis 1, we started with God looking over a chaotic sea. All there was was water. And we talked about how water was this symbol of chaos and disorder and unfruitfulness in the ancient world. And God took that chaos and disorder and he made something good and beautiful out of it. In chapter two, it's the same picture, but it's a different image. Another image in the ancient world of chaos and disorder is the desert. And in chapter two, we see that there is land, but there's nothing growing on the land. It's desolate. It's deserted. The chaos water has to recede for land to appear in chapter one. But in chapter two, the dry desert land has to be irrigated and farmed by the humans. Shrubs and plants are words that are used to describe wild plants that just grow by themselves. And the word mist here is, is a weird word. It, it means usually the, the kind of water that seeps up from the ground, maybe from an underground aquifer. John Walton, uh, trans, or, 
sort of has a loose translation of this verse. He says, no shrubs or plants were yet growing wild for food because God had not yet sent rain and people were not yet around to work the ground for irrigation. So the regular inundations or cyclical floods saturated the ground indiscriminately, thus no food was being grown. And if you can imagine a culture where agriculture is the life of your city, of your nation, and you're in a maybe a river valley and you have to cut irrigation ditches to get the water where you need it to go to get the plants to grow correctly. Genesis 2 is describing a situation where that is not happening. It's painting a picture of disorder, just like the beginning of chapter 1. So what's God going to do? What's, he gonna, what's, he, what's the solution to the problem of this disorder? Look at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. So this is a, a really fun kind of wordplay. There's all kinds of Hebrew wordplays going on in Genesis. And the Lord God, he, he formed the Adam, that's the word, Adam, out of the Adamah the word for ground. So the, the word Adam, what we would say Adam, Adam, means human. It's a generic Hebrew word that means human being. And God makes the human being out of the ground, which is the same, basically the same word, the Adamah. And, and it's interesting to think about like the idea that, and I've heard it taught before that, that the ground, the elements in the ground are the same basic elements that we find in the human body, that there's carbon and oxygen and nitrogen and stuff. And the idea that humanity was made out of the ground makes scientific sense. But that's not the biblical authors, that's not Moses's point. Moses isn't speaking to an audience that understands organic chemistry, and that's not his concern. Moses says the man was formed out of the dust of the ground. The dust of the ground. You, you might form something out of the clay of the ground, out of the soil of the ground. You, could, you can imagine you can pack something together and create a, a body, but the dust of the ground is exactly what we would consider it to be, just the, the light, fluffy stuff on top that you can't do anything with. I've been um, installing a sprinkler system at my house, and our dirt in Coeur d'Alene is very soft and it's been very hot, so it's very dry. And I'm digging an irrigation ditch and the problem is not that I can't scoop up the dirt, it's that I scoop up the dirt and then it all just slides off my shovel back into the hole. This is what we're talking about, the dust of the ground. And so imagining that God like shaped something out of this is pretty spectacular but the point that Moses is making when he talks about dust is not the chemical composition of the human body, but that people are mortal. People don't live forever. Everyone in the ancient world would have understood this. You took a dead body and you put it in a tomb. We didn't bury it in the ground in a coffin back then. We would put it in a, a rock-hewn tomb to lay there. And if you went back in a number of weeks or months or years to inspect that body, it would have turned to dust. And so the idea throughout Scripture of people being like dust 
is a consistent metaphor for death. Job 17 says, will it go down to the gates of Sheol or will we descend together to the dust? It's a death metaphor. Psalm 30, what gain is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your truth? So from the very beginning, his very creation, Adam is described as being a mortal being, a being that can die. And this is a real shift in my thinking because I, I grew up believing that Adam and Eve, they were immortal creatures. And then they sinned and then they lost their immortality. But I don't think that's what Genesis is teaching, that there's no death before sin. I think what Genesis is teaching us is that Adam and Eve were created with bodies just like ours that could die. Now, we're going to see that they're prevented from dying in a minute. But Adam is not created immortal. He's created from the dust. And so look at verse 8. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. So we're going to take a look at um, something called sacred space. This is an idea that we see all throughout Scripture. And this is this, this place where God lives. We talked about it a little bit last week that God says, you know, this whole universe, this whole cosmos, this is my home. This is my, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. But as we go along in the biblical story, we see that God sets apart special places that he calls holy. We'll see it when Moses inter interacts with a burning bush and Moses goes to see the bush that's burning, but it's not consumed. And God says, take your shoes off. You're standing on holy ground, sacred space. Later on in the tabernacle and in the temple, we have these places called the holy places where only the priests can go. And the holy of holies where only the high priest can go. And once a year, and he has to do this special ritual because it's extra holy, it's extra sacred. And so God is creating something special in the world. He's planting a garden. In his universal cosmic temple, this temple has rooms in it. And Genesis 2 is painting a picture of the Garden of Eden as the center of the cosmic temple. This is the place, this is God's home base where the presence of God is going to live and pour out into the world. We'll see it next week, or actually two weeks from now, where that we see that God walks in the cool of the day in the garden. This is where God is setting up his headquarters on earth, the Garden of Eden. He caused, the, verse 9, the Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree, pleasing in appearance and good for food including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he talks about those rivers. And the Lord God took man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. There's something interesting about Genesis chapter 2. If you, you can kind of see it in your Bibles, in Genesis 1, we read that... Um, God said, God separated, God called. The word God there is the word Elohim. We talked about how that's just kind of a, it's a word like our word God. We, our, our word God means a lot of different things depending on who we're talking about. Um, you could talk about God as a, as a Muslim and be talking about Allah. You could talk about God as a Christian and be talking about um, 
Christ, Jesus, or the Father. You could talk about God as a um, pantheist and, talk, and be speaking about kind of the aura of the universe. God is kind of a generic word. That's the word Elohim. Elohim created the universe. But in chapter two, we see a shift. We see the Lord God. And every time in your Bibles, and I, I hate that they do this. I wish they'd leave it alone. Every time you see the Lord fully capitalized, that's the word Yahweh. That's God's name as he reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush. And so all throughout the Old Testament, the people of Israel know God's name as Yahweh. In chapter two, we switch to Yahweh Elohim, not just Elohim. And that's important because God puts the man in the garden where he is, where he lives. Yahweh Elohim is a personal name. You get to know, you know, there's certain people you use their first name and there's certain people you don't. Especially as a young person, like in school, you have teachers and they're Mr. or Miss. You you never call them by their first name. Do you remember the time when you became an adult and and your friend's uh, parents finally said, hey, call me by my first name? What a weird thing, but it's a a change in relationship, right? Now you're, you're, you're you're not kids and they're adults. You're peers, your friends. And so God in switching, or Moses in switching God's name here is indicating that this is a really personal thing. God is in the garden. God is walking with the man. This is a very intimate relationship that's growing here. And he plants the garden of Eden, which we see throughout scripture is called the garden of God. Isaiah 51, for the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and he will make her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and melodious song. Ezekiel 28, uh, talking about the serpent, says you were in Eden, the garden of God. The garden is, is Adam's garden, but it's more importantly God's garden that Adam gets to live in. The garden is fruitful, it's abundant, it's full of plants and trees. There's this great river that flows out of Eden and waters the garden and then branches out into the world. And the the river section's kind of crazy. Nobody really knows anything about the river section. Um, There's a couple rivers that we know, the Tigris and the Euphrates, like we know those rivers. Um, The other two rivers, nobody's really sure. So anytime we speculate on this river is this and this river is that. It's kind of a, it's kind of a waste of time. It's a pretty big mess. But it, it's kind of like this. You ever heard the metaphor, all roads lead to Rome? What that means is that Rome is the center of the world and all of the commerce ways branch out from there. And no matter what road you're on, you're eventually going to get back to the center of the world. This is what we're trying to, this is what is being communicated with these rivers is that this river flows out of the Garden of Eden and it waters in four directions, the rest of the world. This is a motif that gets picked up later in the story at the very end in Revelation 22. John writes, then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations. And there's a bunch of metaphors being combined there, but the idea is that from out of the city flows this healing presence of God that goes everywhere out into the world and waters and brings life to the rest of the world. So man, the man is placed in the garden. 
In verse 15, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. We mentioned this last week, but work it and watch over it are the same words that are used in the directions to the priests in the tabernacle. This is not so much agricultural work as it is priestly duties. The man is the representative of God in the garden. And on God's behalf, he's going to tend to it and grow it. And so by combining what we know about humanity in chapter 1, John talked about a couple weeks ago the creation mandate to go throughout the world to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. With the narrative in Eden, it seems like the plan is to grow and increase the garden as the man expands God's blessing over the earth. The Garden of Eden is this special place that's going to be tended and grown, and sooner or later the world will be filled with God's glory. So there's two trees in this garden. There's a lot of trees in this garden, but there's two special trees that that Moses points out. Verse, verse, uh, let's see, where's it at? The tree of life is in verse nine, in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in 16, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So what's going on here? This is such a strange story. And and for many of us who have grown up in the church, maybe you don't think of it as strange because you learned it from a young age, but if you step back a little bit and go, what's happening here? There's these two trees. One tree is the tree of life. And the tree of life is a picture of God's presence. God is the one that has life. If we are in search for life, it comes from God. Remember, I said Adam is made from dust. Adam is not an immortal being. Only God is an immortal being. And the tree of life gives him access to life. Look at 1 Timothy 6. Paul writes, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. Take hold of it. It's not something you have. Take hold of it. To which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God who gives life to all, the giver of life is God. And of Christ Jesus, who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate, I charge you to keep this command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will bring this about in his own time. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal power. Amen. See, God is the only being that possesses immortality. Any immortality that any other being has is a gift. And so eating from the tree confers immortality. If you eat from the tree of, the, of life, you can live forever. And as I, when I was younger, I, um, I just assumed that it was like a one-time only kind of thing. Like as soon as you eat from the tree, then you're immortal. But that doesn't seem to be what the text is saying. What I, I think is going on is it's more like the tree of youth. As you continue a steady diet of the tree of life, you will live forever. And this is exactly what um, 
we understand about God. God is the only one that's immortal, and our life is conditional on his gift. If we want to be men and women that live and continue to live into eternity, our presence, our proximity, our relationship to Christ is the thing that's going to do that. The human, the man, is immortal because he continually feeds on the freely given tree of life. But then we have this other tree, the tree of knowledge, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. These two words, um, these are pretty um, common Hebrew words. They're tov and ra. They're fun little words, easy to remember. Tov means good. It could be moral good, selflessness, love, compassion, but it also means beauty and excellence. In the creation in chapter one, all of the creation is called tov. It's all called good. Fruitful land is tov. A nice piece of furniture is tov. A well-cooked meal is tov. Sitting on the patio in the summer and watching the sunset, all of these things are tov. And raw, evil. Evil's not the best translation here. It's, it's, I think most of our modern translations just do it because that's what the King James did, and it's such a familiar phrase that we just continue to do it that way. Tov means evil, but it also just means bad. It means moral evil, but it also means foolishness, uh, general just badness. Leaving your freezer open and losing a bunch of food, that is raw. Accidentally putting diesel in your unleaded only car, that is raw. A porta potty that needs to be emptied, also raw. So it's a big word, it covers a lot of ground. The knowledge of tov and raw. The knowledge of good and evil is another way to say wisdom, discernment. Listen to some, some I've got a bunch of examples of this. Abraham's servant. Uh, goes to Abraham's family looking for a wife for Isaac. We're going to get here eventually. He asks for Rebekah's brother and father for Rebekah's hand to go take back to Isaac. And then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. We don't have anything to add to this. We don't have any wisdom that would be different than what you are planning. Another example, there's this woman speaking to David. He, she's kind of flattering him in 2 Samuel. Your servant thought, may the word of the Lord, the king, bring relief. For my Lord, the king, is able to discern the good and the bad like the angel of God. May the Lord your God be with you. David, you're so smart. You, you see everything coming. You have this wisdom. King Solomon becomes king as a young man, and God says, ask me for whatever you want. And he says, so give your servant a receptive heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours. And God grants him his wish and Solomon becomes the wisest man who ever lived. There's a prophecy in Isaiah chapter seven. It's pretty famous. Uh, um, Unto us, uh, or the, for a, a virgin will conceive. You know that one? We, we talk about it at Christmas. A little later on, Isaiah says, for before the boy knows to reject the bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread 
will be abandoned. For those of you that have toddlers, you know that they do not know how to choose the bad and, or to choose the good and reject the bad, right? They put stuff in their mouths that they should not put in their mouths. This is what this is talking about. Young children, babies do not have wisdom. They do not have discernment. They don't know the difference between good and bad. And one more in Deuteronomy 1, your children who you said would be plunder, your sons who don't yet know good from evil will enter there. I will give them the land and they will take possession of it. This is another example of children. Children do not know good from evil. So why does God freely give out life, eat from the tree of life, but he restricts the humans from wisdom? And there's a lot of pages that have been written on this. And we don't exactly know from this passage, but it can't be because God doesn't want us to be wise. The book of Proverbs is all about wisdom. It admonishes us towards the tove 61 times and warns us against the ra 45 times. Proverbs 2.6 says, for, wis- for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So we, we have to wrestle with this idea that why, why is there this situation where God f- doesn't freely give out the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? So as best as we can tell, the prohibition from eating from the tree of knowledge was a pro- prohibition from seeking out wisdom outside of the guidance of God. The assumption is the humans would grow in wisdom as they spent time living and working in the garden in God's presence, freely eating from the tree of life, deepening their intimate knowledge of who God is. And the the tree was a temptation to shortcut that process, to get something before they were ready for it. And those of us, I think, that are parents kind of have an intuition about this. There's a lot of important things that our kids need to learn about the world that we are not just willing to let them figure out on their own, aren't there? We believe it's it's important that we're the ones that introduce them to certain ideas and concepts and that we shield them from knowing things that they are not ready to know. Corey Ten Boom writes in The Hiding Place this story of... uh, her as a little girl, and she had, she had heard something in conversation at school, and she was on the train with her father, and so she asked him about it. She said, Father, what is sex sin? He turned to look at me, as he always did when answering a question, but to my surprise, he said nothing. At last, he stood up, lifted his traveling case from the rack over our heads, and set it on the floor. Will you carry it off the train, Corey? He said. I stood up and tugged at it. It was crammed with the watches and spare parts he had purchased that morning. It's too heavy, I said. Yes, he said, and it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older and stronger, you can bear it. For now, you must trust me to carry it for you. And I think this is what we see in the garden. We see the human who is essentially a brand new child. He's, as far as we can tell, fully grown, but he has, 
He's only one day old, you know? And he's been placed in an environment that is well-suited to delight in the presence of God, to, to, to take in his good gifts and to grow in wisdom as God matures him and his wife later into creatures that will rule and reign alongside God over the earth. If, if the mandate that we see in chapter one, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, to be co-regents, kings and queens under the authority of God, if that's the destiny of the humans, they need wisdom but they're not ready for it yet. And the temptation of the tree is to short circuit that. I don't need God to teach me. I don't need my parent to show me the way. I'm just gonna go after it myself. A couple of weeks, we will take a look at how that goes for them. But I wanna talk about Eden as this, this environment, this place. Because I think this is the place that we are all longing to get back to. A place of safety, of security, of meaningful work, of rest, of beauty, of intimate connection with others, purpose and life all flowing out of the direct presence of God. When we, when we worry about whether or not we'll have enough, whatever that means, when we pursue illicit sexual relationships, whether real or digital, when we drink too much, eat too much, use drugs to alter our minds, when we manipulate and use people to get what we want, when we bury ourselves in debt to achieve the American dream, when we overwork for the satisfying rush of feeling competent or valuable to our employer, every single time we find ourselves in these places, we are longing for Eden. We are longing to be back there. And this is true this morning, whether or not you're a Christian. For some of you, maybe you don't follow Jesus and, and you're searching, you're longing. You, what, where do I get my meaning? Where do I find my value? And you have this deep-seated angst for something that cannot be fulfilled outside of Christ. And every time you take it upon yourself to pursue the latest thing that you think will make you happy, you are pursuing death, not life. As we close this morning, I, I'm reading a book called Between Two Trees by a, a author's name is Shane Wood. And um, he has a section called Longing for Transformation. It's a fairly long Peace, but I want to read it to you. He writes, We all long to be someone different. Every one of us, rich or poor, male or female, young or old, all of us long to be in a different place or in a different time or in a different world. Even those who brazenly desire to stay themselves subtly long to be a different, I dare say, legendary version, whether it be more patient or kind more gentle, more humble, with a brighter smile, smoother skin, higher intellect, whiter teeth, a stronger hairline, a better parent, a better spouse, more well-read, more well-liked, or just less like their mother. We all long to be someone different, every single one of us.
And this is not something to be ashamed of or to bristle against. It's a gift, a divine gift, a gift given in the Garden of Eden by God himself. Somewhere along the way, we forgot the gift of transformation. We forgot this longing was a divine call guiding us back to our creator. We forgot and now we're convinced that trying to be someone different is childish or even unchristian. Our culture fights against this longing as well with ridiculous truisms like, be true to yourself, just follow your heart, just accept who you are without any changes, without any modifications, and reject anybody or any belief that challenges you to be someone different. So we stare into the mirror of our souls, hating who we are, longing to change, longing for transformation. While the world demands, you can't be different. You were born this way. Just embrace it. Yet the feeling never goes away. It intensifies and begins to destroy you and everyone around you. For this longing is found in the excitement of adultery. This longing is found in the intensity of greed. This longing is found in the brutality of legalism, the shame of jealousy, and the cries from the stands of the overzealous parents overcoming the failures of their past through the athletic exploits of their children. In the binge of the alcoholic, the purge of the bulimic, the syringe of the addict, the appetite of the materialist, the arrogance of the self-righteous. Wood's writing that there's this longing in us to be different, and that longing goes all the way back to the garden where God didn't create a perfect world. He created a good world with opportunity for growth. It was a garden after all. Think about that, those of you that plant gardens. Gardens aren't perfect. Gardens are a pile of dirt until you work them and you see the growth and you see the fruit. Garden is a place to plant things and watch them grow. The humans that God planted there were just seeds of what they were going to become. As Adam tended the garden, God was tending Adam. And so you fast forward to us and, and we live as humans in the midst of this brokenness and sin and evil the presence of God is still working great works of transformation. Paul writes in Romans 12, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, because God is so good, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true Worship. Notice all that priesthood language, a sacrifice, worship. This is Adam's job in the garden is to represent God as a priest. This is our job as Christians to represent God as a priesthood. Do not be conformed to this age. Don't believe the lies that you're told, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God? Notice that the wisdom we need to discern what is good over what is bad, it doesn't come by shortcuts. It comes by giving ourselves over to a life lived in the presence of God. And I would encourage you this morning 
to examine yourselves. Are you, are you living a life that is resting in Christ? Again, maybe, maybe you're not a Christian this morning and you're just figuring stuff out and maybe this Jesus thing is, is, it will be helpful to you. And, and for you this morning, I would say like your life needs to be founded on the Lord Jesus or everything that you pursue will end in death. We so often believe the lie that there's that thing out there that's going to make us happy, whether it's relational or financial or a career move or a new toy or whatever it is. But what it was for Adam, and we're, we're people just like Adam, was life lived in God's presence, serving and worshiping and enjoying his good gifts and learning wisdom from him. That's what we have the opportunity to be in Christ. So let's let's look at some questions. Okay. First question, how did we get from Yahweh to Lord? Isn't Lord a different Hebrew word in the New Testament that people didn't call Jesus Yahweh? Uh, yeah, so those are a couple different questions. So the Jewish people somewhere along the line, and I'm not quite sure on what um, time period this was exactly, they decided that saying the word Yahweh was um, not okay. Yahweh was such a big word, such a beautiful word, it was too holy to even speak. And so they, um, they, they quit saying it, and uh, then they kind of... Fr- forgot it, and they, they used a different word, the word Adonai, um, and it didn't disappear from the text, though. So it's still in the Hebrew Bible, um, just consonants. Hebrew doesn't have vowels in it, so it's Y-H-W-H. And in our Bibles, every time you see the word L-O-R-D, all caps, it's the word Yahweh. And so that's Hebrew. And then we get to Greek, the, uh, the first century when Jesus walked the earth. The common language was Greek. A lot of the writing was done in Greek. Um, and so the word Lord in Greek is the word that was used uh, as a substitute for the word Yahweh um, at the Jewish people of that day. So when we read the word Lord, In the New Testament, we're reading a word that is equivalent to the word Lord in the Old Testament, but it's gone through a couple different language steps to get there. So so the comment about people didn't call Jesus Yahweh, well, Jesus, his name was Jesus, right? Like Jesus is a different name, but nobody used the word Yahweh in uh, Israel at that time because it was considered too holy and too... Um, it was unspeakable. Next question, was Eden like heaven? I think so. Go home later today and read the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. The end of the story. 
I read a little bit of it today talking about the river and the tree, but there are so many things in what we call the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth that are pictures of Genesis chapter one and two, but better. Uh, Genesis two, the man is in a garden. Uh, Revelation 22, humanity is in a garden city. It's this giant city with all these trees and rivers and gold and glass. And and that's kind of some of these things about the rivers, how there's gold there and bedellum and onyx. Those things are built into the city in Revelation. And, And so I think what John is trying to tell us is the end of this story is a lot like the beginning of the story. And that's really important theologically for us to understand that The gospel is not that you're a bad person, you're a sinner, Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins so that you can go to heaven when you die. That's a really truncated understanding of the good news about Jesus. The good news about Jesus is that we were meant to live in intimate communion with God on earth, to spread the presence and goodness of God all around the planet and to glory in him and enjoy his good gifts. And sin, when we sinned, when our first parents sinned, they broke the system, they ruined it. All of creation was marred by sin and death because of Adam and Eve's disobedience and we inherit that. And we live in this world of brokenness and sin and death and Jesus came to die on the cross to pay for our sins, but not just for our sins, but for to restore the whole creation back to where it was. And the end of the story isn't just a bunch of people floating up to heaven and living on clouds forever. It's the people of God returning to a recreated earth and living forever the way it was meant to be originally in the glorious presence of God. And so if you have ideas about heaven where it's like, and I, especially as a young person, I thought, man, heaven sounds boring. It's like singing all the time. And it's just, what is there to do? That's not what the Bible's picture of forever is. The Bible's picture of forever looks a lot like this place, but without anything broken. And I think that's a lot to look forward to. So in one sense, yeah, Eden was like heaven. Let's see, what does it say? Um, Genesis 2 is a sequel, not supposed to be back in day six, but why does it go backward and repeat that plants and man are being formed, which was already stated in chapter one? Yeah, so that's a, that's a good question. I, th- I think what Genesis 2 is doing is it's talking about the land that's being prepared for the garden. Whereas uh, Genesis 1 is talking about everything, I think Genesis 2 is zooming into this story about the man and his wife and their surroundings. Because if you take a look at the, the man and the plants, they're all out of order. They don't really fit into the framework of Genesis 1. The plants were made on this day and humans were made a few days later. And so to map Genesis 2 back onto Genesis 1 has a lot of weird problems to it. And so I think when Moses is telling this story about Adam, he's talking about things that Adam is specifically going to deal with. The land is dry, the plants aren't growing 
And God plants a garden for Adam to tend and solve that problem. So I think that's what's going on here. I think that you could say that in general, plant life was created in Genesis 1, and then humanity was created later. And then we're going to, after that period, we're going to talk about this um, little vignette with Adam and his creation. These are good questions, you guys. <sighs> Given that Adam isn't denied access to the tree of life until after he sins, is Jesus the tree of life? That's such a good question because it is a great segue into what I'm going to talk about next, about communion. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Right? There's, a, there's another garden in the Bible where, where we find another man who has the opportunity to seek wisdom for himself or allow God to direct his path. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he presents himself before the Father and says, this is what I want to do but not my will, your will be done. I don't want to seek after wisdom myself. I don't want to go my own way. I want to submit to whatever it is you have for me. Peter tells us in his epistle that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. The idea of a tree being a metaphor for the cross is, is, was pretty common but yeah, that, that tree, that cross, that is the real, better tree of life, isn't it? Because see, today we have the fruit of that tree in front of us. His body represented by the bread, his blood shed represented by the cup. And that tree becomes for us the tree of life and the fruit of the tree of life, the the connecting ourselves with Jesus by, by taking his body and blood into us, by, um, by him being our representative, by getting nourishment from his life. We are invited by God freely to take from that tree. We're not restricted from that tree. Jesus says, anyone who wants to come, eat, drink, And so as Jesus goes in obedience to the will of the Father, ignoring the temptation of seeking wisdom on his own and becomes that tree of life for us, we regain access to the presence of God. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation and the spirit of Christ lives in you. And so while we aren't quite there yet, right? Someday everything will be made new, but we are in a trajectory now of life because of the cross of Christ. So as we close, here's, here's my, my challenge. Come take the bread and the cup. Take it back to your seat. And just think about your life 
and the presence of God. Is, is God's presence, and I, and I don't mean anything weird or crazy or, or spooky. We don't, I mean, those things happen and God does whatever he wants. But I'm just talking about your understanding, your recollection that you are living your life in the face of God. And, and just play out last week. Were you, were you recognizing that, wow, God is here and God is moving and God is in me at work, at school, in traffic, at home? Was that, a, was that a recollection that you had? Was that something that you, you felt, that you understood? Or, or is it something that like, we do church things and then I turn on my God goggles and like, oh yeah, God's here. And then we, we go and we have brunch after church and it's business as usual because you're missing out. Like, and hear me, the, the message isn't shame on you for not recognizing the presence of God in your life, but man, you guys, God, Jesus offers us so much. The picture of the Garden of Eden and the beauty and the glory and the goodness, all of that is on its way, but some of that is available right now. The peace, the security, the wisdom from above. All of that is promised by the Holy Spirit, and we do ourselves such a disservice when we just ignore it. And so as you take communion this morning, ask the Spirit of God to remind you, to show you of ways that your life lets you forget that you're living in the presence of God. And just seek Him and ask Him to help you remember. Let's pray. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.